Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey everybody, it's Dan from The Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, Andy Hawkins and I sat down with Brian Selesky. He's a CEO of Argo AI. Argo is a self-driving car company. They've taken a huge investment from Ford. Brian's got interesting ideas about how self-driving technology will actually take shape over time, how it will be integrated into cars. We talked about the pitfalls of self-driving, what he's really seeing as the challenges of the industry. And of course, I demanded to know when it's going to happen because everybody has a different answer to that question. Brian was a really interesting conversation. He knows a lot about this field. Check it out. Brian Selesky, you're the CEO of Argo.ai. Do you call it Argo or Argo.ai? Uh, we'll say Argo, Argo AI. Yeah. Either's fine. You never use the dot? Uh, rarely, unless we're pointing someone to our website. By the way, I've got Andy Hawkins, our senior transportation editor here hey as well. So tell me about Argo. What, what, you, you make self-driving cars? We, well, we do. We make the software, the sensors, computers that go onto a car that allow it to be self-driving. And uh, we're partnered with a couple auto companies that uh, do the vehicle part. So I ask uh, every self-driving executive who comes on our show this question. Are self-driving cars going to happen? Yes. When? Uh, it's ready when it's ready. Ah, that's actually the best answer. <laughs> it's the best non-answer answer I've got. Most people are like, it will. I promise. Hazy. I decline to answer when. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, look, I've been doing this for you know well over 15 years now. And it moved probably, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. It moved from an if to a when thing, right? We spend a lot of our time doing assistive technology. How can we aid the driver? How can we augment the driver? And a number of different uh, projects back in the day. But when it came to driverless cars, I think the it moved from if to when for me about five years ago. So you were previously at Google and you left to do this one. Yeah. What was the thing that made you think, oh, I need, this needs to be a different company? Well, I left to, first off, it's always been on my list to start a company someday. I just didn't know when the time might be right. But the funding environment was right. Um, I felt like there was a way to build a company that was um, strategically aligned with an automaker to, in order to scale it out. Prior to Argo, I've worked most of my career working on things that are in numbers of hundreds. And I want to get to, I want to build technology that will be out in the millions someday. And in order to do that, you know, making, building, manufacturing a vehicle at scale is, is not, is not easy for any startup. There are companies doing it that have been, uh, that have found some success, don't get me wrong. But um, I wanted to stick to what we know, which is the robotics part, and then partner with the car companies to do the car part. Argo's introduction into sort of the, the public consciousness was really interesting because very few people had, had heard about you guys until Ford made this announcement that they would be investing a, yeah, I was a billion always dollars. The, I was always the guy <laughs> behind the scenes, right? But I think the industry knew who I was. I'd like, to, I'd like to think that. I mean, I'd banked a number of years at that point. For sure. Um, but, you know, at Google, there were very few people sort of at the front line. And frankly, while I was there, I was quite happy to be the guy behind the scenes. It was a great place to work. But what was that like, sort of uh, having that sort of be sort of your broader public introduction was the the announcement of this very major investment from uh, obviously, uh, you know, a storied car company like Ford uh, and having that sort of like that billion dollars sort of being the thing that kind of hung over the announcement, too. Uh, you know, I think it was helpful, at least uh, from a recruiting standpoint, because it helped our employees see a little bit about the mission and what we were, how we, how we were intending to go to market and how we, that we were intending to partner. 
it certainly showed other car companies that um, there was a willingness for us to kind of work with their processes to do things, again, at scale and do them safely. It's been really helpful to us that we have been able to be um, heads down with some stable funding to just go make progress and build the product. Uh, it's really hard to build a company when you're simultaneously fundraising, selling, and sort of building something from scratch. And I have seen that part as well in other things that I've invested in in the past, and it's like, it's it is hard. Uh, so that that funding was very helpful to us to be able to make progress very very quickly. What's different about Argo's tech than other things that people are familiar with, like Waymo or Cruise or something like that? Well, I, I think our approach is. I usually leave the comparisons to you guys, but our our, <laughs> our approach is to uh, focus on the urban cores. Uh, so it tends to be a little bit lower speed, but a very high dimension of complexity. So uh, we operate in South Beach. In fact, I was just there, and and you know the car operates super well, even with the total influx of just pedestrians everywhere. Forget forget crosswalks. Crosswalks don't matter. Everybody's going to the beach and they don't care if there are cars in the way, right? And so, look, we want to go where the people are. We want to go where people want to be because we know there's lots of trips, there's lots of demand, and there's be a, there's a good business case to wrap around that. Uh, so we, we've traded off, to, we've focused, we're focusing on those really high uh, complex areas, lots of interactions per mile per hour, however you want to dimension it. Is that a compute problem or a sensor problem? I think we tend to, just for the verge, we tend to focus a lot on the hardware. What's bolted mm-hmm. to the outside of the car so you can see the world. But are you more focused on the what am I seeing and how do I get around it, or you we have to detect everything first? You know, robotics is a funny thing. It's it's we, we call it a tightly coupled system, meaning that everything has to work for you to have a good end result. Um, if any one piece of the the picture, any one piece of the system is performing suboptimally, the thing doesn't work. That, that's that's the thing about robotics. So it's all important. We need uh, certainly a lot of compute. We certainly need uh, sensors that give us 360 degrees of awareness around the car. We're a believer that um, you should use multiple modes because different sensor types fail uh, when compared to others. So the strengths of one complement the weaknesses in others. So we use camera, radar, and uh, LIDAR. And when you're when you're working in a very complex scene, it's not good enough to just say. And when I say complex scene, I mean lots of cyclists, lots of pedestrians, lots of cars that are everywhere, not following necessarily the rules of the road. In order to interpret that and navigate it, you really have to have a very, very acute and and precise sense of what is what in the scene. It's not good enough to say, hmm, that blob of like points from a LIDAR, we think that's a pedestrian. No, you have to know that that's actually a pedestrian climbing out of the vehicle and they're most likely going to go around in a particular path and that you want to give them plenty of margin and room when you, if, if, you're, if it's safe to pass. So um, the, uh, the technical term might be scene understanding. Um, that is super, super important. We hear about some of the the scenarios that uh, self-driving cars have figured out, uh, whether it's traffic signals, certain in- intersections. Um, what are some of the, the scenarios that are still proving to be a challenge, would you say, for cars to figure out? Does it sort of go into the area of edge cases, or are there still just sort of very like basic things that still need a lot of work done to it? So the broad strokes answer is it's things like really bad weather. So if you have, and by the way, if there's snow on the ground, that's not so much a problem. It's more the falling precipitation. So if there's falling rain, falling snow, fog, those are difficult problems. And before you even get to the software part of the problem, you have to get past the fact that the sensors just see the world fundamentally differently. And so we have to build just new models and new ways of tackling that. Maybe there are new sensor types we could look at. Um, But it's going to take invention. I believe it will take invention both at the hardware level and the software level to tackle that problem. You mentioned edge cases, you know, edge cases are a funny thing. As a human driver, you put on however many miles a week, or maybe you don't drive, but a typical person in their commute will put on so many miles a week. And uh, they might see one or two anomalous things. If you have a fleet of cars every day putting thousands of, of miles on, all of a sudden, the what you thought was infrequent actually turns out is really frequent, right? And so that is the other challenge. And yeah, absolutely. We have to build a system that's uh, resilient enough to handle all of these pretty frequent things that occur that are, um, you know, that, that to you may seem abnormal, that actually we're, we're learning it's pretty normal, actually. So let's take a step back and, and talk about why you guys are doing this. You know, why do we need self-driving cars and what's sort of like the business case that you see for uh, the technology you guys are working on? 
So I think the answer that you probably hear a lot is about around safety, and that's super important. And we believe the same. We believe the same. Uh, human drivers are not great at driving; they're distracted. Many of them. Um, there are good drivers out there, but there's also <laughs> there is also a large distribution of drivers who I think would prefer not to be driving. Uh, so so we want to not remove driving. We want to augment it and give people a new ch- another choice. Okay, and a lot of people don't use uh, rideshare services today because they want they want a more personal experience. They want to listen to the music they want to listen to. Maybe they have to carry things around with them. Maybe they have um, whatever it is. They want a more private experience, a more tailored experience. Or they're, so, maybe they're afraid of their driver. Or they're you know they're in a situation. Well, you know, for a lot of people, especially for for women for women riders, absolutely. it can be a yeah. you know a, a, a crapshoot in terms of and, what kind of driver you. Can and be. I am having a really bad run of of rideshare drivers. <laughs> Right now, like I just am, it's not good. Um, we could talk about that later, probably. That, so the safety is number one, I, and, and, I, and that is absolutely a mission that drives our, the company, our employees. It's why I'm involved in it. I think what doesn't get talked about enough, though, is also the problem that cities experience and how this can be a, a solution to at least a dimension of the problems that that cities have today. Cities have unprecedented congestion. There's more cars on the road than ever. The system is in gridlock. People's ETA, you know, the ability to get to where they want to go quickly is is uh, it's is increasing. Com- average commutes are increasing in time. Um, and so, how how do we how do we solve that? The good news is that the more autonomous vehicles that are on the road that are deployed in a shared context, in other words, you don't own it, you just use it when you need it, it means that the vehicles can pre-position themselves at night when there's less congestion on the grid for where the demand will be in the morning. It means that we'll be able to, uh, after it drops you off, you can go on and serve the next person. It won't be hunting for parking or consuming real estate in the city. Uh, Rand did a, a great report that showed that up to a third of the real estate in a city core is devoted to parking, which is a shocking statistic. Imagine if you repurpose that for other things that people want, whether it be parks or, or uh, affordable housing, whatever it might be. But that's going to take a long time, right? It's going to take a long time, and I'll, I'll get to that part. The last thing, I, but the other third thing I want to get into that's that I think is important is that um, is that in addition to changing the landscape of cities, we can also tell vehicles an autonomous vehicle will listen to a. Uh, think of it as like air traffic control for cars, right? That will more intelligently route it so that we can alleviate and deal with the congestion. Maybe I add 30 seconds, not much to your estimated time of arrival, but I've saved the other person 10 minutes because they need to take that route. You didn't. So we can load balance the how the cars use the available road space. Now, we're not solving that problem at Argo, to be clear, but there's a but we're going to see companies that are that are also working in that space. You can't necessarily tell your Uber driver to take this particular route, but you can tell an autonomous vehicle if we all work as part of a shared system for the greater good. So I think that's some of the the huge advantages. Now, none of this stuff happens without uh, having sort of a, a more of a, a penetration of of autonomous vehicles in the in the global f- in the fleet. Or I shouldn't say global, but at least city by city. And so, yes, it's going to take many years, but we got to start now if we want to get there. I'm having difficulty sort of squaring the notion in my brain that the solution to all sort of the problems that plague cities, whether it's traffic congestion or infrastructure problems, is more cars. Uh, I feel like there's a growing sort of number of of people who say actually the solution is is less cars and we need to start thinking about policies and solutions that sort of redirect cars out of cities and and try to find ways to get people out of whether it's ride hailing or or taxis or what or personally on vehicles and onto public transportation. Obviously, these are huge issues and not something that Argo is necessarily geared towards solving. But how do you sort of address that issue? You're totally right. So more vehicles is not the answer. Um, Again, if uh, encouraging the use of shared fleets helps because we we then can create incentives to not bring a personally owned vehicle into sort of this at least the city center where there's the most congestion and parking issues. The other thing that we can do is, or the other thing that we have to realize is, when I talk to city leaders, yes, I would love to have huge rail systems that would take us anywhere we want to go. Yes, I would love to have a subway in every major city. Yes, I would love to create more bike lanes and take away road space to give people other modes of transportation. I would love to save the public transit systems that tend to be bankrupted in a lot of cities for a variety of reasons. But we can't solve all of that at once. And the fact of the matter is, when we talk to city leaders, they're stretched thin just doing the simple things, let alone figuring out how to put an elevated rail system in, for example. And so my view is that while we need to keep the road infrastructure running, let's 
find a way to reduce the number of vehicles. Maybe we can look at higher occupancy autonomous vehicles over time, and we can use and use that road space more efficiently. Because I don't think any of us have the silver bullet that's going to solve the funding problem that exists that would otherwise allow us to live in a car-free world and still get to where we need to go. So when you're talking about reducing congestion, and you're talking about maybe once we have a, a fleet of sufficient size, we can start programming cars to go in different ways to reduce overall congestion. That either implies that you will operate all the cars, which would be great. I think everyone... And we're not doing that. Right. That's not the suggestion. I'm assuming you and your investors would be happy with that outcome. There's only one company, it's Argo, that got all the cars. Or you've got to be interoperable with every other kind of self-driving car. Or there needs to be some sort of statewide federal vehicle to infrastructure communication system that exists. Which of those are you betting on? Which of those is going well? Which is going poorly? So I, I don't know. It's a great question. I don't know how all of that's going to play out. We are not building the the kind of the traffic cops, so to speak. Um, and and I, I know there are other companies out there that are very nascent that have this idea, this ambition. But these those companies, for those companies to be successful, they're going to need to be willing to really work closely with the cities and engage because they're going to have an unprecedented amount of data about the movement of objects in that city. I use objects purposefully if it's just conceptual. They're going to know a lot about everything and how it moves. Um, and so there's, you know, there's really important issues here that, that they're going to need to sort of work through. I still believe, though, that without that, that kind of um, traffic control system, I think it's going to be very difficult uh, in order to, to deal with the, the rising congestion issue. I mean, we're starting to see some of this play out, but in a different space, in the scooter space right yes. now. You got all these scooter companies that are want, want to drop their vehicles into cities. And, see, you know, at first that, that seemed to catch cities off guard, and now cities are sort of uh, playing catch up. And you're starting to see some of them, like, like Los Angeles, uh, play really aggressively in terms of uh, data sharing and, uh, re, you know, mandates on the companies. Uh, do you see that as sort of being sort of like the model that's going to be uh, carrying off into the future for AVs? Yeah, like I said, I, I don't. I don't know what the right model is, and I'm, I'm certainly not uh, able to sort of lay out the master plan. I would say that that Argo and our partners were open and we're listening, and we want to tap into some sort of standard that would allow this to happen. It's for everybody's greater good. It, we have a vested interest in getting customers uh, to where where they need to go as, as efficiently as possible. So if there's a, a better way to do that, we're going to make use of it. So this is all like the second order problem. It's, the, it's this is like once we win. We can foresee this set of problems coming to the fore. Like, how are all the cars going to talk to each other? Who's going to control the data? How will we keep it private? But first, the car's got to drive itself. It does. And so I guess my big question is, you've got safety drivers in your cars right now. We do. Presumably. Yep. How long until that, that driver gets out of the car? It's ready when it's ready. You know, we look at uh, we look at a lot of the data internally, uh, whether it be events that come in. Um, we look at all of our testing. We look at those results on a daily basis. We're constantly improving the system. You know, the answer is I don't think it's entirely up to us. Like even if I thought, hey, we're going to be ready on this date, you know, later this year. Even if I said that, I think that um, cities also want to have a say. They want to understand, and I can't I can't exactly time how long it's going to take in order to get. You know, Mayor XYZ up to speed and and for the community to be excited for us to be there. Last thing I want to do is is build a company that launches a bunch of technology that consumers don't understand or, or, or are afraid of. We want to build that trust, and that's only going to happen over a long period of time. So I don't think that there's a binary switch that gets thrown where a company puts a bunch of vehicles on the road, and then boom, everything's autonomous. There's no driver in the car. I think it's a staged thing, right? We have two drivers in the car today. Um, as things mature, I'm sure we'll move to a, a single driver. After that, I'm sure we'll move to a point where maybe there's a person in the car, but the person's just there to educate the the riders, answer their questions, and get them comfortable. This is a long game thing, and it's going to be a multi-phased approach. It's been kind of a momentous year for autonomous vehicles. We've had uh, some of your competitors showing off their wares, basically. You've got Waymo doing rides with nobody in the front seat. You've got uh, Cruise just recently unveiling its first purpose-built vehicle that they say is going to go into production. Um, do you guys see value in sort of those kind of like flashy public demonstrations is like, hey, come look at our tech. It works. It's Come look at this car that we're going to make. It's going to be so cool. Uh, you guys seem to be sort of playing things a little bit closer to your vest. Is that on purpose? Well, I think everyone's in different stages of development, and for us, we want to share things to the extent that it 
going back to the education topic, we want to share things that helps increase the awareness level of, of communities. Um, I'm sure that the folks in, in Chandler or wherever Waymo is operating with their first driverless system, I'm sure that they um, have learned a lot through the engagement with uh, with Waymo, and and you know they've got a plan as to how they launch, and they're working with the city, and those are great things. We need to, uh, as an industry, we're all going to be building up our playbook as to how we um, as to how we launch in each city, and it's going to be potentially different city to city depending on what the community wants. Um, and that that's the thing that you know we talk a lot about at Argo is that uh, this is a city by city, street by street thing. Um, there's no silver bullet that launches this everywhere uh, in in a in 24 hours. It's not like an app we put on the sto- on the uh, on the app store that everybody can just go download the minute you're ready to launch. It's it's a very different type of launch than is typical for you know most industries. I mean that 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 presents enormous challenges, I would imagine, especially if you want to like scale a business, and that's something that we hear from Ford, one of your big backers, a lot is you know we have to build this business, and you know the whole intention is to launch at scale. At least that's what the company said uh, in terms of when there's a you know when the technology is ready, street by street, block by block. How does that sort of you know what sort of tensions does that create in terms of wanting to you know scale a business? Well, when we say scale, we're talking about um, I think the scale word is used maybe too generally sometimes. Um, scale for us means that uh, we're building a system that can go to multiple cities without having to completely redesign it. There's some technical approaches that you could take that would allow the vehicle to work perfectly in one city and then not be able to take it to the next five or ten. So Ford has obviously the manufacturing scale, which is important, but they also realized that that at the same time, this is a brand new technology that people need to get familiar with first. And so our plan is that we're we're operating across many cities in what we call kind of a beachhead. We establish uh, an operating area, and then we slowly grow it over time. But we do that in parallel. So we're operating in uh, DC, we're operating in Miami, Austin. We've got a few more to follow, and this allows us to do the mapping, to engage with community leaders. Uh, we build a great, excellent workforce in these cities that is helping us to test this technology. Who have local knowledge that really helps us develop the playbook I was talking about earlier. And 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 so my in my viewpoint is we are scaling by doing that. Yes, it's small, and no, the ramp is not. Uh, maybe as steep as what everybody would want to project, but we're getting learnings every day on how the software works across many, many cities, and that's super powerful. Uh, do you think that uh, autonomous vehicles are in this uh, trough of disillusionment right now? Well, I don't know where we are in the hype cycle. I, I do think that the uh, the, the overall uh, media engine has maybe, in the last few years, um, increased... Or maybe, or maybe set expectations where a lot of what we just talked about was was somehow not not accurate. It's gonna it's gonna happen, Brian. You're just too much of a downer. Tomorrow <laughs> we are gonna throw the switch, um, uh, and and I just don't believe that's the case. And and I think it's starting to uh, I think it's starting to become true. And I think a lot of the writings that we've done where people said, "Gee, you're just you know you're not it's gonna it's gonna happen faster." I think people are starting to realize that. That no, it's, it's it is going to be gradual, but it, but it is also I'm also very optimistic about the future. The again the safety benefits, the way in which cities can change over time is super powerful, um, and and so we're a huge believer in the tech. It's just going to take a little bit of time, and uh, so I don't think it's the trough of disillusionment. We've always approached this with sort of a realistic set of expectations. So you've got a different kind of model and attitude about this than some of the other folks that we've we've talked to. And I just want to push on a little bit. You know, you're you're talking again kind of at the second order of things, right? The the long goal, the long game that you're playing is eventually cities will change around self-driving tech. And we're gonna build we're gonna build technology that enables that and lives in that world. Right now, I'm just looking at your website, that looks like a Ford Fusion with a hat on it. Right, but like eventually that stuff will get smaller. Ford will redesign the car around your stuff. That's a prototype. The, the, they're actually building a purpose-built vehicle. They haven't announced it yet. There you go. What's it called? When does it come out? Uh, well, I can't. I can't, <laughs> I can't give you <laughs> answers to any of those because they I, haven't announced it that's yet. That's what I'm setting you up for. Uh, <laughs> Are you trying to get me in trouble with them? <laughs> that's all always. I'm here to do. <laughs> oh, wait. I, I think everyone sees that. Next to that, though. You have a bunch of car makers who are slowly but surely iterating on their assistive technologies, right? And that's the other path that they're all taking. You've got GM doing Super Cruise and the Cadillacs. It's getting better. Mercedes has a version. Tesla just straight up calls it autopilot. 
right? Like they're just they're taking basically cruise control, saying it's a little bit better than before. It can keep you in your lane. This is how we're going to march forward. That is a a pretty familiar pattern in consumer tech, right? Like here's this here's the inkling of a of a feature or a capability, and we're just going to iterate till it becomes the whole thing you want. Why are you betting on sort of the big jump as opposed to the iterative approach? Well, I think there's a time and place for both. The the iterative approach makes drivers better today and prevents drivers from maybe making bad decisions, that's excellent. We should feel that as fast as we possibly can. That wasn't the way in which Argo was founded, was not to solve those set of problems, but there's plenty of companies that are working on it. And we, I 100% support all of that. I would like to see that stuff on every single car as fast as humanly possible. Uh, Automatic emergency braking, um, is 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 can be and it has been a lifesaver. We need it on more cars. I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you entirely. Right, but if we want to talk about you know you're using the term, you've used the phrase second order a couple of times. Second order to me sounds like it's maybe a, a lesser impactful thing than the first order thing. I don't think that's the case. Okay. Autonomous vehicles is uh, has the potential. Uh, and and will be realized someday. I just I'm struggling because I I don't think any of us knows how to put a time on it. But it has the potential to completely reimagine how cities are built. It can plug into a smart system to address congestion issues. It will allow people to get around cities much easier. It can it, it has the ability to uh, serve areas that for whatever reason there's lots of reasons, but for whatever reason might be underserved and where the last mile issues are really troublesome. That's super impactful stuff. And th- that's those are first order level. Uh, that's a first order level of of impact. And and I'm not saying that we sh- that because we're working on that we should just wait and just deal with the vehicles we have today. We should be improving the whole the whole ecosystem. And to your point, there's many years before all of this gets rolled out truly at scale across hundreds of cities and you know millions of people. In the meantime, we absolutely should be making cars safer. Yeah, I guess uh, the reason I keep saying first and second order, I'm, I'm glad you, you're pushing back on it. Um, it's the second order set of challenges. Like once you have the self-driving car, it becomes very easy for me to orient everybody that I talk to or our audience to now the city is going to manage a bunch of traffic data and send instructions with perfect compliance to cars in a way that we know that human drivers just won't listen. Because they won't, I won't. Um, but the robots might. We, we hope. That's why I keep saying it's second order. The first one, it. You're, actually, talking, about, you're re- talking about priorities, then, in terms of what. Yeah, I, I think what I'm really getting at here is it seems like you're betting on the paradigm shift, and everyone else is sort of like, how do we? How I'm do we saying inch our way I'm saying to it's it? inevitable, and it's yeah. going to take many years. We got to start now, but we also have to be doing things in parallel. We, we have to. We should be working on making. Every type of vehicle and mode of transportation it doesn't even necessarily be a, vi- a vehicle. We should be making every mode of transportation as safe as we possibly can, because changes in transportation, changes to how vehicles are fundamentally architected and designed, it just takes years for it to pull off. There's a whole supply chain that needs to be built. There, there, uh, there is validation that needs to happen that takes a long time. It's capital intensive stuff um, that only pays back over many years. So, if we want to see any positive change in a in in a complex area like transportation and automotive, we have to be playing for the long game on all these things. We, we've also got a climate change problem, and uh, obviously transportation is a, is a major factor in that. I think around a quarter of emissions are due to due to transportation. How do you guys – you guys have not said uh, in terms of – we're going to go all electric, or you know, you you got the Ford Fusions that you're using now. But have you have you sort of made started to think about in terms of for the fleet what makes sense? Absolutely, in both, terms of lowering emissions. Both of our partners are all in on all electric vehicles. Um, they each have uh, solid programs in their in their cycle plan as to a solid lineup of electric vehicles in their future. Right now, if we t- start talking about how it gets phased in over the near term, say the next five to ten years, the way I look at it is. Hybrids are a good balance because the technology itself to drive a car uh, consumes quite a bit of power. And there is a, and this hasn't been really written about a lot, but there's a whole utilization thing that's important to make the business case work. We want the cars need to be on the road earning money, okay? Uh, The longer it sits at a charger, the more time that goes by that it's not making money. And the potential, if you use fast charging, it's also destroying the battery chemistry, which then has you replacing batteries on a more frequent schedule, which also is not good for the environment. So the, the way we look at it is hybrid f- uh, makes sense in the very 
very near term, okay? And then, and then as battery technology improves, as we can put more and more battery power, uh, which gives more range onto these vehicles, it can support the technology and we can phase in a, the, a fully electric vehicle. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, again, it's going to be a time-phased uh, thing. By the way, this changes, these economics are very complex, you know, the range of a vehicle depends on so many factors. It depends on the type of vehicle, the type of battery technology that's being used, and so on. So everybody has to pick a cho- pick something that balances the business case, but that eventually gets you to that electric future so that we also do the right thing for the planet. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn, it's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. There's a part of me where I'm like, okay, you can drop the the tech of self-driving onto an electric drivetrain, a gas drivetrain, a diesel drivetrain, whatever, and you've still got a steering wheel that takes inputs and turns the wheels and you've still got... Or maybe uh, you don't. Maybe there is no steering wheel. Well, sure, but when you drop it onto one of these cars, like you still have to turn the wheels, you still have to go backwards and forwards, you maybe have to shift gears, but it doesn't matter what's providing the energy of the car. Is that true? Is that just me making a big assumption or is that... Well, this this gets a little bit technical. I mean, every car is unique in terms <laughs> of its electrical architecture, wh- whether it's uh, uh, an internal combustible engine, whether it's hybrid or all electric, there are different nuances here. Certainly the way in which we, we tap into the vehicle, uh, there are a couple of things that must be true. There needs to be a fully redundant and fault-tolerant braking and steering system, right? So you need to make sure that, that on whatever vehicle you add the self-driving system to, that if a electronic controller, or think of it just as a, a simple computer that controls the braking system or that controls the steering system, if there's a failure, it needs to continue to be able to brake and steer, Right. And so the way in which that can get accomplished, there's lots of ways to do that. But that's that's those are kind of table stakes as to how you uh, think about uh, retrofitting a, an existing vehicle. Now, as we go forward, we'll certainly be looking at ways to make that design more efficient when we look at a completely purpose built self-driving car that was never meant to have you know pedals or a steering wheel. But an ICE engine or an electric motor is not. That's not changing your design. It's not changing the design substantially. Now, if it's an ICE engine, the, there's not the amount of power available to power the electronics without putting a, a, a fairly large and um, sort of annoying to integrate inverter on the car, <laughs> right? Um, you know, back in the old days, if you want to reminisce a little bit, uh, we took a, when we did the one of those DARPA robot races called the Urban Challenge. We had a Chevrolet Tahoe. It was not a it was not a hybrid vehicle. We actually added an alternator um, that was fairly sizable 
uh, onto the onto the engine. But in order for that alternator to provide continuous power to the electronics, um, we had to run the engine at a higher idle. <laughs> uh, it blocked a substantial amount of free space under the hood that we thought, gee, wow, it's really convenient. We can stuff an inverter in there. But you know what? It blocked airflow, which ended up melting wiring harnesses. So we had to put a, a hood to direct airflow over the over the uh, the fuse box. And I'm probably telling you more you want to know. but No, this, this is, is actually what I'm here for. Uh, okay, yeah. all right, okay. <laughs> Tell me about is, the melting wires and the DARPA chain. <laughs> right. Now, these things never went on public roads, by the way. Yeah. They, these, these were experimental vehicles that we tested on various tracks for this uh, – this this yeah. robot race, but it was. Um, well, don't it, just call it. I mean, this was a seminal moment in uh, it's a in huge moment the, in the history of, of autonomous vehicles. You know, you don't, I don't want you to undersell your. your yeah, our audience your, is deeply aware of the dark. Okay, 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 okay. Participation. <laughs> it's just a robot race. You know, <laughs> your average. It was just a silly race, race that we did. No, well, we I mean, launched billion dollar companies. It, it, you know, it did. It showed the world what was possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, in eighteen months, we went from a concept on a napkin to a, a vehicle that was able to navigate city-like streets, uh, you know, have the right behaviors to handle um, con- uh, uncontrolled intersections. And I mean, it was, we all, I think, surprised ourselves as to how well it worked. We, we had no idea what was going to happen. It was the first time we'd really had an opportunity for everybody to go build a robot to the same general set of rules of the road, throw them on a track and see what happens. And it was actually quite remarkable how well it worked. Uh, in, in terms of the the hardware suite that you guys and most of your competitors are using these days. You've got camera, you've got radar, LIDAR. Those seem to be sort of the holy trinity, right? Yep. Is there sensing technologies out there that you guys are thinking about or looking at with some interest that maybe aren't part of that package so far that maybe down the road there's you know a possibility of something else coming in because if you guys are talking about safety and redundancy I'm sure you're trying to look for every possible thing that's out there that could help with that yeah and the good news is that between those three um, I think we ha- we have a pretty good it really is kind of the Holy Trinity today um, and the good and the reason is because we see line of sight to build all three cost effectively at volume with the uh, all the the functional safety uh, requirements Requirements uh, met, and that's a good thing, right? Um, now there are other modes out there. Uh, there's there's certainly um, thermal imaging cameras. Um, those are a little bit challenged because they're fairly high priced today. Now there are there are vendors out there that are looking at uh, bringing that price down. They're looking at automotive qualifying it, but those are going to be on timelines that uh, will will not show up in the next couple of years. Those cameras are interesting. They provide interesting signal. In in the past, when we've tested those types of sensors, they tend to if you're in a really hot climate or if you're in a climate where the weather or where the temperature, excuse me, changes over a very large range, it becomes a pretty interesting calibration problem so that the image doesn't look just fundamentally different day <laughs> night, which which affects computer vision and all the other things that happen downstream of that to interpret that data. So it's not without its its share of challenges, but I do think that's an interesting sensor modality for sure. How limited are you by the sort of vendor ecosystem? You're saying it's a, it's a tightly coupled system. How much is it where you're like, actually, we should invent thermal cameras, or this is what the industry is. We see the timelines. We're going to invent the software suite that does sensor fusion and all the other stuff. Yeah, so the timeline to build any new sensor from scratch is years, um, and that's just what it is, especially if you want it to be a reliable component that meets automo- typical automotive standards. Uh, so that's that investment can't be taken lightly, and you want to know you're building it that you're building something that will see the light of day, right? Um, and because of all those factors, then a lot of the tier ones or, or typical manufacturers that build this stuff, um, they, they don't take risks. They don't take huge risks. And so a lot of times what you'll see is that we're hardening or making tweaks to things that came out of the driver assistance world. Um, and and in, in our case, we've done that, but we've also had to invest in you know, from scratch development because the performance just isn't there. And this gets back to your earlier point around uh, the driver assistance systems and, and how that's still equally as important as anything we're doing for the long run with autonomous vehicles. And I totally agree. Uh, the tier one supply base uh, uh, still has plenty of work to do to get the sensors and computing systems where they need to be for driver assistance. And so a lot of the resources on is, are on that let alone you know, being able to make, make that same resource available to work on longer-range things for autonomous vehicles. So there's definitely a little bit of tension there. Because the, the, obviously the goal is to get the cost down to a point where it's not 
prohibitive and, to co- be. and cost only comes down if you get the volumes up. Right. So that gets us back to sort of like it's ready when it's ready. Uh, obviously, it still needs to be ready at a, at a point when you know you can start to scale and bring that cost down. When this unannounced Ford vehicle comes out, <laughs> which is uh, when? I'm going to keep trying. You know, uh, the thing about me is that it's never good. subtle. No, I like it. it it's, I appreciate it. It's right that. through the front door. Yeah, yes, yes. There's, there's. <laughs> well, Ford said 2021, right? Uh, see, see that is subtle. <laughs> Ford said November fourth, twenty twenty one. Is that correct? Remember, or not correct? I'm remembering things. Nothing's changed. Okay, actually, let's talk about Ford for a second. Why you're looking at your PR guy? <laughs> <laughs> when is the hook coming? I just want to smile. I, I, he, 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 he to- and I'm not going to go there. All right, go ahead. <laughs> Great. So now we can talk about your relationship with Ford. This is going to go perfect. <laughs> Uh, no, you've got two big car companies. VW is the other one. Yes. Those are big companies that sell a lot of cars with ice engines and steering wheels. You're describing a vision that fundamentally disrupts their business. You're describing a vision that fundamentally says maybe people in cities should not purchase a car. They should operate in a, in a ride-sharing fleet with better congestion and environmental management. What is that like in your conversations with Ford and VW? It's actually really simple. They don't sell a lot of cars in the urban cores because people are disincentivized to uh, purchase a car. They don't want to pay the taxes, the maintenance, the insurance, the uh, parking. How much does a a lease go for in Manhattan right now? A parking space for a car? Yeah, for for one car for parking space. I saw uh, the sign. I mean, I'll tell you how much I pay. I paid, I paid two seventy five a month. Yeah, it's a well, lot of money. It, it must be. Well, um, I don't live in Manhattan though. So that's okay, okay. So in Manhattan, the sign I passed the other day was, uh, it was something like five ninety nine, and, and then there was an additional one hundred eighty dollars tax on top of it or something. I, these numbers are not exact, but like the okay, that's a pretty big signal from the city that says don't bring your car here. It's yeah. it's right, and so because they don't sell a lot of cars they realize that they need to that the business needs to evolve and it's not like personal car ownership's going away of course not um, people buy cars all over the place it's just not in the, with this particular demographic in in cities because of the challenges we've talked about so that means that the shift towards shared mobility services is happening and how do they get how do they be how do they become part of that and how do we make the economics of those shared services viable the key is you need a few things. You need uh, the right vehicle design where we can give great experiences and, and move people around efficiently. You need autonomy so that it doesn't need parking spaces. It can just keep moving to go fulfill the demand in the area. Um, and uh, to do the right thing for the planet and everything else that comes with it, we need to make the switch and move to electric as well. So it's those confluence of things that are coming together that that the automakers are saying, hey, we need to solve this problem. If we want to go after this market, we need to have those three kind of uh, pillars as uh, as part of our business. What do you learn from like the ride-hailing companies that have tried this? They've tried the sharing, Uber pool, Lyft carpool, and it hasn't been as much of a success for those companies as they originally anticipated. It's just a sort of fact of human nature. People don't like to share things, especially <laughs> American consumers, I would say, are probably less likely to want to share, even when like the, the price point is at, at, a, at, a, at a highly competitive rate. I mean, they were Uber was just dumping money into Uber pool, trying to subsidize the heck out of it. And while it's still around, it's just not, it's clearly not as successful as they thought it was going to be. So what, what, how are autonomous vehicles going to sort of solve that problem? So I'll try to tease this apart the best I can. Um, there's a couple of things that capital gets sunk into uh, in a ride hail company today. And of course, I don't run a ride hail business, right? So this caveat all this, but this this is, I think, what we understand about these businesses is that, first off- You don't it, look panicked. I, I can, yeah, I, I'm I can not understand panicked, that. No, so yeah. that's how we know that you don't run a ride hailing company is you're not sweating profusely. <laughs> and, Thank you for saying that. Okay, yeah. I'm not. No, I, I'm not. <laughs> Um, so, so the capital goes into a couple of places. Number one, in order to service demand, you need a supply of drivers, and there's a flywheel effect that has to happen here, right? In order to move, in order to drive and kickstart that flywheel, you need to provide subsidies to compel drivers to want to work for you to get on the roads and service that demand. So, the more you have to subsidize those drivers, the more money you're spending on the driver, and that's what that's injuring the the economics, right? And so, if you don't need to pay a driver, then of course you. Are are able to uh, offer it with a more affordable price point, right? In theory. Now, this this makes a lot of assumptions about the operation that you also don't have, you know, ten thousand remote operators driving the vehicle remotely, 
right? Yeah. So, so it needs to be the right autonomous vehicle approach. The second thing that capital goes into um, is that you know the, these companies are, in addition to dr- sort of driving the the supply of drivers, they they also have their autonomy efforts that they're that they're piling money into, and this is where I think we're going to see some consolidation because that R and D spend can only happen so can only can only uh, continue for so long, because this this in and of itself building an an autonomy engine, if you will, it costs so much money. It makes sense for it to be a platform. It does not make sense for just one party to have access to it. That's my belief. So you you don't think people will want to personally own self driving cars, or that will be a business model in the future. I think it. I think it will be a business model once, once the shared serve once once an, once an autonomy enabled shared fleet is successful. Because you want the volumes. To, the volumes need to be up uh, in in a, in a territory where the the component cost comes down that that an average person could could afford it on their on their vehicle, uh, on a personally owned vehicle. The third piece that that I think is important to recognize is that these rideshare companies um, are continually trying to expand. So if you go back to the first one on the flywheel effect, those subsidies get amplified if you're trying to take on, okay, now I'm going to go to India, now I'm going to go to Brazil, now I'm going to go to China. And you wage war potentially with your competitors, and that, that, that continues to jack up those, those sub- subsidies, right? And I think some of the companies have gone on record to say, look, if we stopped trying to expand and we just focused exclusively on profitability in our most profitable regions, we could become a profitable company. Um, so there's also this sort of delicate balance between growing and sort of growing the high, but on the other hand, focusing the business in order to drive profit for uh, shareholders. There's a, a lot of skepticism out there about self-driving cars, and it's, you know, uh, I know that you're trying to do what you can. You have your own podcast. You out there, you're out there talking about things, and you talked a lot about education uh, and wanting to make sure people are aware of this technology. This is not a technology that, you know, the vast majority of people have come into contact with, and yet it seems like a lot of people have already formed an opinion about it. Um, and, you know, you can say that some of that had to do with Uber and the, the crash that occurred in Arizona a couple of years ago. You can say some of that has to do with uh, Tesla and the way that Elon Musk talks about these things and tends to sort of muddy the waters when it comes to talking about autonomy. Uh, how do you guys operate in a space where you have high levels of public skepticism and other players in the in the in the space sort of doing their own thing that doesn't necessarily maybe uh, help uh, alleviate people's skepticism about it. So I don't know that there's broad skepticism. There's there's definitely pockets of it. I, I hear you. Look, I was in Miami a couple of weeks ago talking to uh, a number of people in in the community, right? Um, uh, and and what I found was. There is actually a substantial amount of optimism there. They realize that it's going to be very difficult to get new forms of public transit uh, funded. They realize that there is a congestion issue, and and many of them don't want to drive either. And and so, it's one of those things where I just think that that if you pick the right city and if you explain it, I, and and that is why we have our no parking podcast. Uh, wow. The whole the whole concept. Well thank you. It. The whole concept around it is to uh, is to raise the education level in the cities that we're operating in, testing in, and and give people an opportunity to just understand better what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I find when we explain it and we explain it in a fairly accessible way and we talk about some of the advantages, people start to buy in. And uh, I think any company that's in the AV business is also in the trust business, and and they need to do their share of kind of bringing the community along. All right. So I ask every CEO, well, I'm doing it this year. I haven't done it historically, but I've started. Every CEO comes on the show, I ask the same question, mostly because I want to know the answer for myself. When do you work? Because you got to come on podcasts with, with yahoos like us. You got to do your own podcast. You apparently have to sweet talk mayors around the country into letting your cars on the road. You got to probably go to meetings. When do you sit down and look at stuff and say, okay, I'm making decisions or I'm producing something as an actual individual producer as opposed to a manager. Yeah, my, my own personal tactic is I try to clump the travel together. So like I'll put myself through a week and a half march to just go everywhere I need to go and do the outreach. It kind of gets me in a groove. It gets me out of the office. I enjoy it. Um, but I do spend uh, a significant percentage of my time uh, at our offices engaging with people and looking at the strategy and, and running the company. You just have to, but you have to set uh, really 
tight boundaries around how much time you spend and allocate to these things. You have to be disciplined in terms of how you set your time and be purposeful about it. What does that discipline look like for you? Does it, do you have like calendar blocks or like leave me alone? Does it, I, people are giving me all kinds of wild answers to this. I'm, I'm curious for everybody. I got, I, you should do a best of where you compile all the answers. Yeah, this is my, uh, yeah. my my pop business book <laughs> in the making. It's good, it's good. To, who I, moved my cheese? <laughs> Eli Patel. Dude, where is your cheese? That's, that's, that's my that's question. Where, yeah, I like it. Uh, um, no, it's, it's the range of answers to this question to me is, is fascinating. You know, I tend to look at it as a, I look at my schedule kind of like a map. So if, like, if you go to, if you go to Google Earth or, or 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 your favorite mapping application, you can zoom way out and see sort of the rough outline of things. I manage the rough outline. We're gonna we're gonna go to these offices. We're gonna look at these sites. We're gonna this is where the travel will be, and this is where I want to do you know one on ones for certain to do certain to stay in touch with my leadership team. This is where we're gonna have certain meetings, and then I let the team figure out how to fill in those blanks. Right? Um, I don't when I go to. Washington, D.C., I don't know all the people I need to meet with, but I know I need to be there. So we carve out the time. I, I set the high resolution, and I let the leadership team figure out kind of the low, the, the microscopic uh, details, and that tends to work really well. That's us, the microscopic details. <laughs> we, are, we are 100% a microscopic You are detail. one 60-minute block <laughs> of many. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I've, but a very important one. I've this always has been, wanted to be valued in this exactly been, this way. This has been super fun, actually. <laughs> there you go. See, we did it. Um, but So my question is about context shifts, right? Like, it's very hard, for me anyway, to be like, okay, I'm going to sit down and write an email now. Yeah. Or like produce, and then I'm going to go to six hours of meetings and come out. This is something I've been particularly good at most of my life. I, I have a little bit. I, I can't do any one thing for too long. Like I love to do lots of things, and mm -hmm. it just keeps it different for me. Monotony is my enemy, so I I, I love it personally. But yeah. I, but my brain's wired that way, and I know there's others that uh, they're much better at going into the deep multi-hour thought session to come up with something that I'd never come up with. So we each play to our strengths, right? All right, man. Tell the people. You already plugged your podcast a little bit. They, tell them about it again real fast. Uh, no Parking Podcast. It is uh, hosted by myself and uh, uh, Alex Roy. You can find us on No Parking Pod on Twitter. You can go to noparkingpodcast.com. Uh, please check us out. We're trying to raise the awareness of autonomous vehicles to people who maybe don't follow the subject every day and want to listen to some entertaining material at the same time. And what's next for Argo? Which people will be on the lookout for? Uh, what's next is we're going to be moving to a, to the next step in terms of prototypes with Ford. We're continuing to expand in cities. Um, we continue to serve uh, our testing through across a larger and larger area in the cities that we're in. And, uh, you know, we're excited to see what happens over the next couple of years. And this unannounced prototype. That's, uh, yeah, this, that's right. Yep. Which we've now announced like four or five times. We didn't denounce any details. They've, they've said plenty of times they're they're going to build a purpose-built vehicle. I'm just trying to. I'm literally trying to get the hook. No, it's there. good. It's you're you're doing good. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for coming to the Rush House. It's a great conversation. Thank you. It's a great time. All right, my thanks to Brian Selesky for talking to me and Andrew on the Vergecast. We'll be back later this week with the chat show, the interview show next Tuesday, and on and on and on. Tweet at me. I'm Matt Reckless. I love hearing your feedback. We'll see you soon. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.